Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that delves into the murky but always entertaining world of crime drama on the page and on the screen. In this episode, I'm joined by one of our best-known and best-loved actors, David Morrissey. We're going to focus on David's illustrious career, as well as talking about his latest role in The Missing. We'll also be asking him how he thinks male characters in crime drama have changed over the years. Not only that, but a bit later, we've also got a special interview with Lee Child, the creator of the Jack Reacher books, which inspired the film starring Tom Cruise. Now, Tom might be a bit shorter than the character should be, but then Jack Reacher can't dance around in his shirt and socks while pretending to sing into a candlestick. So, swings and roundabouts. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Now, David, you don't really need an introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. Uh, you are one of this country's most in-demand and versatile actors. You are. You are. Yes, you are. Um, You've worked at the RSC and the National. You've starred in movies such as Captain Corelli's Mandolin. You got fruity with Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct 2. You did. You turned your hand to period fare with Sense and Sensibility in South Riding. You starred in State of Play. And you won a hatful of awards for your portrayal of Gordon Brown in The Deal. Um, Before we go on to The Missing, I want to talk a bit about how you approach playing a character in something that's been adapted uh, specifically from a crime novel. You were in the adaptation of Denise Miner's A Field of Blood, David Peace's Red Riding, but I suppose we should start with an adaptation that's slightly closer to my heart because in 2010 you played Tom Thorne, quite brilliantly, I should add, in the adaptation to my first two novels. How did that come about? That was really interesting because I was in New Zealand and I was doing a movie down there and I, it was a, one of these blue screen, green, green screen movies. That's the one with the monster in it, isn't it? Yeah, The Waters. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I really love the film, but I, I had a lot of time off at one point and it was in the winter. It was sort of August in Wellington in New Zealand. So it was pretty miserable, really. But I had a lot of time off and I went to a bookshop in New Zealand and and I bought Sleepyhead and uh, I read it and I loved it and I I didn't know your work I didn't really know anything about it but I just loved this book so I then googled you and found out you'd been an actor and a stand-up and all this stuff and then there was a interview where you said if this ever got made into a, 
a TV show. I'd like David Morrissey. To play you me. fell into my <laughs> trap, <laughs> Mr. Bond. There you go. No, but it was it was a plan. You know how how rarely do plans actually come to fruition? Because yeah, actors never Google themselves. But, so, but from, from the moment <laughs> uh, the first book came out, people were saying, "Who would you like to play Tom Thorne?" And it must have been around the time of State of Play, somewhere around State of Play, before, been, yeah. before Blackpool, State of Play. I think. And I'd gone, that's, that's my guy. That's who I want to play Thorne. And then I just thought, if I keep saying his name often enough in interviews, eventually he's going to find out about it. And, you know, cut to several years later. So, yeah, so you then, go, but then you come back and we. we so I we come, meet up. We meet yeah, up. Yeah, but before we met up, do you not remember the oh, weird yeah, thing of my really wife stalking you? I was on the tube. <laughs> I was at, at my local tube and there was a tap on my shoulder and it was this. Lovely lady saying to me, hello, yeah, I'm Mark's wife. And Didn't was, she actually say, hello, I'm not mad? Did yes, she, I, think, <laughs> I think she did say that, yeah. With the jury's still out, obviously. Yeah. Oh. But no, she did say, uh, I'm Mark's wife. And then we got talking and that was good. And you, obviously, you know, park your car in my road before you get on the tube. Yeah. And uh, so that's what had happened. And it was lovely to meet her. And then you and I met and we had a chat about the best way of bringing this to the screen and we formed a company and we did that. And I think, you know, what we wanted all the time, the, the two of us, was sort of, because we both had various experiences in television where we'd slightly not lost control, but, we, you know, our vision was slightly being taken away from us. So we wanted to keep as much control between you and uh, us as possible, and I think we did that. And uh, it was a bit of a patchwork quilt of trying to get everything together yeah but the essence of it all i thought was really there and i loved what we did with those novels and i it's a real regret to me that we didn't go on because i think personally and you can't say this but i think that the novels get stronger and stronger and and also you know i do feel as the novels go on the ensemble nature of them mm. is opened up you know there's some great characters that you want to explore and because I was also a producer on the series, you know, I was looking forward to sort of getting involved with those characters. I think there's great strong women characters in the in the in the later books and stuff. So it's been a real shame for me and I know for you that we didn't carry on. With well, that. although it, it ended uh it didn't end particularly well on that particular channel. Um I'm still hopeful. I'm still hopeful that one I day too, we yeah. can do it again and you and you can come back to that role. Mm. And I I know from from working with you on Thorn that you like to create backstory for your characters and that you and do you do that whether it's kind of an adaptation or not I do, do you... yeah I do I mean I get as much as I can like with Thorne there's a lot of backstory in the books some of which weren't relative to the, the the show that we were creating you know there were certain things about my Thorne that was different from the book oh, which there has to be it yeah, has to be it just different is. so you know I do create a backstory I like that I think for me I usually will start around the birth of the character. Sometimes I've gone even further and started... <laughs> Into the womb. <laughs> I've started with their parents before your character was born sometimes because maybe my character's a real sense of grievance against one of their parents, you know. And uh, certainly when I did Our Mutual Friend, I felt that this man, you know, had a relationship with his father which was not good and then came to understand his father. So things like that. And then I will write that quite extensively given depending on the time I have, up until when our story starts, to when the script starts. And then I know. So, I, you know, it always starts with, for me, reading the script. I'll read the script a lot. I'll read it, you know, five, six, seven, eight times. And then I'll put it down and I'll start 
uh, doing my backstory. It was a very interesting experience for me. I remember you you talking to me about Thorne's backstory on the set one day and telling me stuff thinking, and I was thinking, God, I wish I'd put that in the books. <laughs> there was a really interesting anecdote. I can't remember exactly the details of it. It was about Thorne and, and going to watch football with his dad or there was some, and I just thought, my God, you've really, really gone into this. I think, you know, you know one of the things about, I felt was, and uh, we had Jack Shepard playing Thorne's dad in the TV show and he was brilliant. Yeah. So that, that point in anybody's life when you realise that your dad isn't a hero, that, you know, that they're, A, they're, they're mortal, but B, they're not able to protect you. And I did feel that there was a sense for Thorne being in a football match with his dad, which is a great experience, and then leaving it and finding themselves in a place, an isolated place with some rival supporters mm. who attack them when they attack his dad. And he sees his dad beaten up in front of him and he can't help because he's too young. So he's both, you know, he's sort of full of shame about himself, but also this man who he reveres and loves and also sort of hero worships suddenly isn't the same person from that day on. And he's, you know, the, he's a good policeman, Thorne. Mm. That's the thing. He believes in the job he does. He's not bent. He's, you know, certainly bends the rules inside the game. But he believes in justice. And where does, where's that born out of and stuff like that? So I wanted to give him a real sense of that. And he's of the street. You know, he understands yeah. the streets as well, yeah. you know. And... And I felt that he had a very complex uh, relationship with his father and with manhood in general, with himself. He doesn't have kids. You know, there was a lot of stuff like that that he was sort of fighting with inside himself. So I just put that in the backstory. It's very interesting you should mention manhood. I mean, I do want to come on to talking about masculinity and 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 the role of the male character certainly in in crime fiction um but aside from actually working on backstory of characters i know that you know uh, on thorn and other things you've you've shadowed police officers you've talked to to politicians and journalists for other kind of jobs you've done in some ways it strikes me you often do more research than than a writer would do i mean it's well what's good about it is uh, sometimes when you're doing research what you're doing is you're only confirming what the writer's already written whether the writer has done that research or not but it's there and for me you know my research is about getting the job right if i'm playing someone if i'm playing a politician or a policeman then you know if they're going to watch it i want them to to see that i've done the job that the job is right i mean a lot of policemen i talk to what they get very annoyed about is that you never see the paperwork <laughs> You know, and I went, yeah. it's not the most dramatic thing in the world. And they went, I know, but that's, you know, that's so much of our job. It's the paperwork that we have. Yeah. To Scene three, filling in expenses you for know, But <laughs> they carry that with them as the fact that what they want to be is, you know, fighting crime and, you know, getting the bad guys off the streets or whatever. But they have to cover their tracks legally, paperwork-wise, all the time. Yeah. So there's a sense there for me of just going, okay, what, what can I do to honor these people I'm playing? And I like it. I mean, the bottom line is I like it. I like meeting people from professions other than mine. I like talking to them. It's amazing. You have this as well as a writer. I know you do. You know, when you meet people, you'll just start talking to them. And they're very cagey at first. They're sort of, they're quite guarded. And then they'll start to get to know you, have a few drinks or whatever. <laughs> and then all this stuff starts coming Oh, yeah, coming they out. like to talk. People and like it's talk. wonderful. And you could use, you'll end up using 2 3% of it. But the colours it gives you are really great. If you are appearing in something that is an adaptation of a book, whether it's a modern book, whether it's a classic, is your starting point always the book? I mean, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that you might be more sympathetic than a lot of actors are to the original writer because you're married to a novelist. I am, yeah. You, will you always start with the book? I will, yeah, always. I mean, on Corelli, I started with the book. Uh, the adaptation was very different. 
uh, our mutual friend I started with the book. I think it's all there. And and also, it's important to say that I, I also honor the screenwriter. You know, there's, you can't get it all into the, into the... But there will be details that I am trying to figure out in... I remember on Our Mutual Friend, they talked about him having a salt and pepper waistcoat. And I just, I made the costume designer's life hell because I kept saying to her, that's brown. I don't think that. That's not salt and pepper. She was like, oh, no. And she, eventually she found this waistcoat that was beautiful. It was just this real beautiful salt and pepper sort of shade thing. And I thought, that's it, that's it. And I knew that, you know, in my madness that I was driving her crazy, but it just meant something to me. And I know it sort of meant something to her as well. It was that sort of challenge that you want really sometimes as, as you know in the creative arts that you want that thing thrown at you and not take anything for granted but what about but do you feel a responsibility because you are taking on a role that, that, that some people already have a fixed idea about in their heads it's somebody they've read about obviously you have to you have to bring it has to be a different you know when you're playing thorn you had to be a different thorn but i think i've told you the story before but i remember when we showed a preview of it at the Edinburgh Festival one year. This was a couple of months before it had come out, but I showed this preview and I was very proud of it. The lights went down and up it came and there you are doing all this stuff. And the lights went up and I went, so what do you think? And a woman in the front row just went, he's too tall. <laughs> and it's just, you realise that, yeah. that people do have a fixed idea. Oh, definitely. And so do I. I mean, so do I. You know, I read books a lot. I, mean, I love reading and I will go to the an adaptation of a book I've read and I think, no, it's not right for me. He's too pretty or she's not right or or whatever. You know, I will have those opinions myself. I'm quite right. But my, for me as the actor, why not use all the resources that are there? And if there's a book there, go for it, you know. But in the end, you end up doing, you know, you collate so much and then you just you just have to dive off the diving board at the end, at the end of all that, you know. I don't want to be walking onto the set unprepared. Plenty of actors wouldn't, though. Plenty of well, actors would not read the book. Or I, would almost I, deliberately. I've worked with brilliant actors, wonderful, wonderful actors who read the script and turn up. They read the script. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they only vaguely read the script. <laughs> They're just looking for their lines. Well, yeah, or, or they want to keep it in a in a sort of not too digested sense. They want to keep it at the just beyond their fingerprint uh, fingertips. You know, they do. So, and they are brilliant actors. So. Everyone has a different way of working. And just because someone works in a way that is reading the script once and walking onto the set, it doesn't make them a lesser actor. No. Uh, but it does make, you know, it's it sort of what I like to do is have a lot of sort of uh, armory behind me. And I like it. There's a geeky side of me that I like it. I like history and I like reading. So, you know, and uh, it's sort of the way I'm built. I like that story that I think I've heard you tell or I've read about that one, one of the favourite Morrissey family photographs oh, is, is the one taken on the set of Captain Crow. So tell that story. On, so I've got, at the time I had two small children and my wife came over to uh, Kefalonia where we were filming Corelli to see me. And one of the crew said, let me take a photograph of you. So I'm standing and I took a photo. And it's a, a photograph, and when you've got kids you know this, that... My wife is really happy with the way she looks and her hair, and my kids are smiling cherubically, looking fantastic, and I look great. The only thing is, I'm dressed in a complete Nazi uniform, <laughs> but it didn't bother us. We just put it on the we put it on the shelf. We didn't think we put it in a frame. It was on our mantelpiece for it, and it wasn't until someone pointed it out that it was, might be a little bit weird. Was <laughs> me just standing a little bit. there? Oh, isn't yeah. she looking lovely? Don't the kids yeah. look? And ah. there's me. <laughs> In my jackboots. Well, talking about very dark characters, every now and then you have you have 
taken on the role of a very, very dark character, serial killers, corrupt coppers, the governor, of course, in The Walking Dead. Does the devil have all the best tunes? Is it really more fun playing the, the villainous characters? Uh, I don't know whether it's more fun, but I enjoy it. I mean, I, it's sort of the way, you know, I've been cast. Um, I always believe that nobody is all one thing, so it's not about someone being completely evil or, or completely good. You know, we all have aspects of both of those ends of the spectrum, so it's about finding those colours. But, yeah, I mean, I think, for me, I enjoy playing someone who is uh, walking a fine line mm -hmm. between whether they're going to do something good or whether they're going to do something bad. The governor was a great character because I felt that before the zombie apocalypse, he had probably been quite a good guy. And it was uh, he was probably middle management, married, one child, you know, doing well, you know, paid his taxes, did all that. But in the light of this catastrophe, He's stepped forward and he's found something in himself that is a leadership quality and a ruthlessness. And, you know, nobody knows until we're challenged. And uh, and I always felt he was a very good guy, actually. I felt that. <laughs> Misunderstood. Yeah, I did. And also, you know, he was someone who created a, a really secure environment. I mean, Woodbury was a fantastic place to be if you're going to be surrounded by zombies. I mean, it was a place where you, your kids could run out of the door and play in the street. Everybody was safe. People were fed. And, you know, you look at him and you look at people around vying for uh, leadership battles today. And, you know, he ain't a million miles away from people that we can see in our very lives. That is the truth. Um, in the 90s, it seems to me that you made a speciality out of playing coppers, framed and black and blue and between the lines. But clearly there's as much of an appetite now uh, as there was then for, for, for crime drama. Now, crime drama in some ways, you know, is bread and butter, bread and butter jobs for, for the working actor. But I would argue that it really provides challenging roles. Um, you know, crime writers are always arguing that the genre is an opportunity for looking at the world, for dealing with social issues. And I'm presuming you'd agree that that's the case when it comes to playing you know, people that work for, for the police, for example. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're at the front line of our society, aren't they? So, I, I, you know, they, they encounter, uh, you know, our, our society's problems firsthand all the time. So it's great for us. But also, I think that, that sense of wanting to be, you know, that mystery that we have, the thriller aspect, the whodunit, the, you know, that's a great ride to be on. And we've never been tired of that, you know, through through history, ever you know, since, you know, I'm playing a Roman at the moment, but ever since the Roman times, you know, that idea of storytelling being a mystery and being, a, you know, where did this crime begin and who did it, Romulus and Relus, you know, it's all that stuff of who who was it, who's, who was my brother's killer, all those things. So it, it's always been with us. And I think we'll never get tired of it. What we get tired of, I think, is uh, being patronised. Yeah. So there's a time when you think, uh, in some dramas, you might think, oh, it's that type, it's taking me down that path again, or we've seen this. Or Sometimes I think in drama, everybody's in the race to be second, that someone goes over the line and does an original piece. They will do something that people go, that's fantastic, I haven't seen that. And the next you know, six months, eight months, you'll get 12 dramas like that. Right. You know, suddenly everybody wants to do a Scandinavian drama, regardless of where it's set. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, uh, 
those Wallander-like dramas came out, they had a very strong sense of place, a strong sense of the, what the camera was doing. They slowed dramas down. They were, they were wonderful. And suddenly, they were everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then there'll be different things. But it, uh, there's always uh, how you ape those things is always very interesting. I think you're absolutely right, though, about that. I think it's hardwired. I think it's in our DNA that looking for story, looking for narrative, wanting to know what happened next. You know, you see it in cave paintings. You kind of see the story, Absolutely. you know. Um, the same way you look at clouds and you see faces. Yeah. We, we are hardwired to look for narrative. And I find it very hard to either read a book or watch something on TV that doesn't have that engine. That but engine now, I mean, what's our, what's our big thing now? Our big thing now on social media? Baking. No. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but on social media, our big thing now is spoiler alert. Yeah. Because we want to be surprised. We might ask, people ask me all the time about The Walking Dead. They say, oh, who, who is Nagin killed? Or, you know, what's this, what's that? And they ask me, but they don't want me to tell them. Right. They, they want to ask. But, you know, the last thing they want is for me to tell them because they want to be surprised. They want to be surprised. And, you know, we talk about the water cooler moment. People are trying, they want to have that water cooler moment even now. So they say, don't give us spoilers because we want to see it for ourselves. We want to go on that ride. And that's because we want to be thrilled. And we want to, we want to experience that thing like we all, people have in, in the past. Well, talking of spoiler alerts, we, we will be talking shortly about The Missing, which of course is on TV as we speak, and we'll be trying not to give anything away. <laughs> but if David has made a name for himself playing all kinds of different characters in crime dramas, Lee Child's staggeringly successful Jack Reacher series has introduced us to a character that is very much set in his ways. Lee has sold, oh, I don't know, a gazillion Jack Reacher books. In fact, it's said that someone somewhere in the world buys a Lee Child novel every four seconds. Surely that person's got enough by now. With the 21st Reacher story out in November, our roving reporter Paul Hirons caught up with Lee to talk all things Jack and talk about how he fits into the current crime landscape. Hi, I'm Lee Child, author of the Jack Reacher series. Lee Child is one of the biggest selling novelists in the world and Jack Reacher is a truly global phenomenon. I wanted to find out from Lee if there was more to Jack than just your regular stereotypical action hero. He is uh, ex-military. He's now in the civilian world and a complete fish out of water. One of my favourite internet descriptions is the Jack Reacher series is a detective series where the detective commits more homicides than he solves. So this sounds to me a little bit like a stereotypical action hero, but I'm wondering if there's a deeper layer to the character. But in literary terms, he's, he's a, a modern iteration of the knight errant, the noble loner, the mysterious stranger that you can trace back through storytelling for literally thousands of years, um, you know, through American Westerns, through Scandinavian sagas, all the way back probably to religious myths, the, uh, the saviour that shows up in the nick of time, does his thing and then moves on. And in all of those thousands of years, the moving on was extremely important part of it. Um, what do you do with such a guy if he sticks around? Well, you certainly wouldn't invite him round for a barbecue and to meet the family, that's for sure. But of course, we're not talking here about a mythical tale in the classical sense. He's still very contemporary in terms of his desires, but he's all fashioned as a character in as much as he's not damaged in any way, he's not miserable, he's not depressed, he doesn't have any literal or metaphorical bullets lodged near his heart. 
So from one world on the page to another on the screen. Because now, Jack Reacher, of course, is a movie franchise starring Tom Cruise. Now, when it comes to authors and adaptations, some like to give over control and some don't. What about Lee? I'm fine with it because I don't really see it as, as uh, letting it go. The movie is a completely parallel step operating on a, on a peripheral track. Hang on a minute. You don't just let Jack Reacher go into the ether and then just sit there and twiddle your thumbs, right? There's got to be some more involvement. I stay out of, of any concrete development as much as possible because I think it's very hard to do on your own stuff. Um, you've got to be so brutal and so callous about the way you rip it apart that I, I'm not sure that any author can really do that for their own stuff very effectively. So I'm happy just to let them do what they want. And, um, you know, it's true that we, we're all good friends, that they're very inclusive and generous, and so I've spent a lot of time with them. But I, I just hang out really as a friend of the production rather than any kind of consultant or uh, with any formal input, because I, I really don't want any. I, w- I would rather see their version than, than participate in it. I couldn't not ask Lee about this. What did Lee think about Tom Cruise's obvious shortcomings? It was more important to me that, that I had somebody who got the internal process, the internal vibe of Reacher, rather than a physical replica. And I think Cruise does that really well. Fair enough, Lee. I take your point and I can't disagree, because as we all know, characters on the page and characters on the screen don't have to be exactly the same. But I do have one more question about Tom Cruise. What was it like working with him? I hang out with him quite a lot, and uh, you know, I got to know him. He's extremely smart in the storytelling sense. That's the thing that I think people don't really realise about people at the top of that profession. They're just obsessed with story, and that's a very nice dialogue for a writer to have. You know, finding somebody else who cares just as much. Do you know what? I really enjoyed that. I was not expecting him to go off and talk about medieval myths, Scandinavian myths all that kind of stuff, which makes me think there's a lot more to Jack Reacher than meets the eye. The second Jack Reacher movie, Never Go Back, is out in cinemas October 2016, and Lee's new Jack Reacher novel, Night School, is out in early November on Bantam Press. So we heard from Lee Child there talking about how Jack Reacher is a very particular kind of male character. But David, your speciality to me seems something a little bit different. The everyman character, if you like. Somebody who's caught up in extraordinary life-changing circumstances. I'm thinking of roles like your role in The Driver, to a degree to a degree like The Missing, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that's always something that's fascinated me as a writer. And for me, it seems much more fertile, interesting ground than, you know, spies or serial killers or whatever. An everyday person caught up in extraordinary circumstances. Absolutely. And I think it's that thing for me of, like, how relatable is the character. It's always important for me that, you know, one of the things I never want to, to do as, as for my characters is to ask for sympathy. You never want people to be sympathetic about your characters. But you do want empathy. You want people to be, uh, you know, to relate to you and, and wonder what it would be like to be in your shoes and what would I do. And, and I think that's very important for me. It's the type of drama I like to watch as well, where you're watching something and go... You know, this man is stuck between a rock and a hard place. I can understand it. I can understand why he's making very brutal decisions, you know. And 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 you need to put yourself in people's shoes at times to, to understand that they have very, very difficult choices to make, whether it's about keeping their family alive, whether it's about, you know, um, 
running away from a situation or running towards a situation. I've always felt that, oh, you know, that our own, what makes us us are our spontaneous reactions to things. And we don't know what our spontaneous reactions mean. And they could change. You know, we on a Wednesday, we might run towards a situation that on a Tuesday we run away from, you know. And not to condemn for those reasons, you know. It's, it's important, you know, we might think of someone as a coward. But we don't know what their life is. We don't know how they could speak up. We would like to say, "Oh, I'll speak." I would have sp- spoke up at that point. You made a, you made a film. You made that film with Jimmy Nesbitt, which you directed, yeah. which is exactly about that moment, isn't it? When yeah. somebody doesn't help somebody who's being it was attacked. Passer by. Yeah, it was written to by Tony that. Marchant, and it, yeah, it was about a man on a train uh, late at night, and he's in a carriage, and the girl gets on and sits opposite him, and then the next stop, two guys get on who giving her a bit of a hard time. And he sort of tries to interrupt and he doesn't succeed in sort of getting them to calm down. And his stop comes and he gets off the train and she says, please don't get off. And he said, look, you'll be all right. If there's a problem, just pull the cord, you know. And the next day he's looking through the paper and he sees that she was raped and he just doesn't know what to do himself, how to make things right. And, you know, we want to condemn him, but... It's important for us to feel about what he was going through himself and, you know, and that moral dilemma. Tony's really wonderful at writing those moral dilemmas, I think. I've worked with Tony before. I did a piece of his called Holding On and a piece of his called uh, Into the Fire. And they were all about that moral dilemma of a person uh, who was very relatable. Well, I say a perfectly ordinary person caught up in extraordinary circumstances. And which of us can say how we would react? I I think it's very important to, to know that we don't know, you know, and not to condemn too much. Well, let's talk a little bit about The Missing, which, of course, is, is on uh, the BBC as we speak. And you play Sam Webster, who on the outside, on the outside, at the face of it, is a kind of unemotional military man, obviously suddenly finds himself in the middle of something extremely emotional without giving too much away. I know you can't give too much away. There are presumably well, a, the lot, there's a lot more is, going uh, on. You know, right? The premise is he's a, he's a soldier stationed in Germany with his young family. He's been there for quite a long time. He's uh, he's a mechanic. He's part of the transport uh, uh, military department and head of that. And but has seen active service. Has been in war zones. Yeah, and he's a guy. You know, he's a man. And his daughter is taken from him, and his wife and her brother, and the family really come together. They really it it acts as something that they really work hard, the mother and father, to make sure the son is all right. And that means that the family are a solid unit. And they go through terrible times, obviously. Uh, Their daughter is never discovered. But it sort of unites them in a way that is unbelievable. And then, 11 years later, the daughter comes back into their life. She is discovered and comes back into their their family's life. And it tears the family apart. Mm. So what they've always wanted is for their daughter to return. And she does. But it just puts a wedge between all of them and I love that, that it's turning idea. the original concept of the missing on its head in many it ways is, isn't it, it is very much so but it's also you know a story that we are all too familiar with you know we've seen it in, in America and in Austria and stuff and you know there is a but you know I think Jack and Harry do something else with it which they again they broaden it out into a big ensemble well it's the ripples in the pool of that type of something like that that happens particularly in, in this community which is an not an expat community but it's a it's a military community in a, in, in germany 
But it was it a tough decision for you to decide to take that part on in something that had, you know, had an incarnation what it was I a couple of years first. ago. I loved the first. I thought the first uh, show was brilliant, and I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Nesbitt. So I just think he's a great actor, and I thought it was a wonderful production, and I thought it was it had so many different twists and turns and threads, but great actors in it. Uh, and I thought it was brilliantly directed. Of you know, the one thing that I came away from with that was uh, was um, Tom Shankland, who directed it brilliantly well. And so yeah, when the second one came up, I was uh, really up easy for decision it. then, yeah. But it, it's a hard, you know, it's eight episodes. There's not there's not any laughs in it, you know. But not even one. Well, I think there might be one, but I'm not sure whether it's intentional. But uh, yeah, no, it, there, there, you know, there is some, there is some, uh, there's some stuff in their side there, which is funny, but not for my character. And that was hard. It really is over eight episodes. And thankfully, I was working with Keely Hawes Haw- and uh, Laura Fraser, uh, who's just brilliant, and we just got on really, really well, the the, the three of us, and just had a real laugh. Really. Well, we, we've talked a bit about the the research you do, and I presume you did as much preparation for this role as, you, as you've done for others um, but it seems to me that you see your job in some ways as losing yourself uh, in the character I read an old interview with you in which you were described as the incredible disappearing man uh, you know this notion <laughs> That's what my that... wife calls me anyway. <laughs> but you know this notion that actually you've got to completely let this character subsume you and 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 disappear into it. Yeah, them. I think that I, that's the way I like to work. So for me it's I will get a character and do a lot of work. If I have the time. I mean sometimes you get a character and you you the, the job I'm on at the moment Britannia. You know, it happened quite quickly for me. So my research has been happening as I've been going along. But usually what I will have is a good month to 6 weeks before the show starts and and that's when I will start to work out the beating heart of the character and you know what he's trying to hide what he's frightened of you know is fear and humor are very similar you know what makes me laugh might not make you laugh and what makes me frightened might make you frightened so i have to find out why and what it is that makes this guy tick and that those idiosyncrasies of character are what's important for me sometimes i do that thing if i think uh oh, this is this is really going to weird my life out this is really gonna it's over the summer holidays it's like you know all those things come up and then i think i've got to wear a toga you've got to take that into account in in the winter (laughs) and then i think how would i feel if such and such an actor played this role and i think i'd go crazy i'd go man if i turned on the tv and i saw such and such a person playing this and therefore, I want to do it. Whereas if I think, what would I think if I turned on the telly and blah, blah, I was playing it? And I go, actually, I feel all right about it. Then that's a good reason to turn something down. That's a good reason, then you're not going to do it. Well, the same, I mean, the same thing I think is very much true in the, in, in the crime genre, where if somebody wants to deride uh, that particular genre, they'll always talk about how it's about puzzles and plots and, you know, the characters are sort of one-dimensional, that kind of stuff. But actually, I would argue, well, of course I would argue that it's all about character at the end of the day. And the great masters of that genre, whether they're, you know, and and the characters that come from them, from Sherlock Holmes to Inspector Morse, it is the characters you will remember. You won't remember the the ins and outs of some of Sherlock Holmes' plots, you know, snakes and poison and whatever, but it's that character. It's all character. And it's also, you know, in Holmes, you know, Studying Scarlet is one of my favourite books. And it's that sense of when they meet for the first time, you meet this guy who's quite young, but he's with this guy who's been to Afghanistan, 
he's battle fatigues. He's probably, you know, we wouldn't call it post-traumatic stress, but he's got that. And Holmes just taps into him and he's got this genius, but he needs this other guy. You see him. And there you've got the characters forming straight ahead. And it's wonderful. And then you can play with it. Yeah, I have that all the time. I mean, I think sometimes you'll start reading something and you think, oh, this is great. And it runs out of steam. Yeah. And you think, oh, they've started well, but they can't, they can't finish it. They don't know where they're going now. And that's... That's disappointing, but luckily for me, I haven't. Yeah, it's the series that goes on too long, or, or the TV show that has one season too many, yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. That's right. But I mean, these are characters that that you play that touch people's lives. I mean, it's not it's not too strong a way of putting it. it. You know, something that's on over these eight weeks of playing this character in The Missing, or or if you're, you know, I remember again you telling a story somewhere about when you would when State of Play was on, and right the way through into the end of that series, all the other parents at yeah. the school gates are like, oh, I saw it last night, it was ever yeah, so good, yeah. until the end. Until the end, when it was me, and nobody spoke to me at all. <laughs> it was really horrible. It was like I took my kid to school, and that was it, you know. I mean... People do react to me. And it's interesting, the governor, actually. The governor is because, you know, in in America, spoiler alert, but I, you know, I my character kills off a lot of other characters in, in, in The Walking Dead. And I kill off one of the one of the main main favorite characters. I won't say who it is, but I do kill her. And walking around America, men in particularly men in white vans shouted abuse at me. In a way that, I mean, I might as well have punched Judy Dench in the face. <laughs> it was just horrible. And they really took it personally. I mean, they really did. And you do do that sometimes. I mean, you know, and, and Gordon Brown was a f- perfect example. When I was playing Gordon Brown, you know, people came up to me in the street and started talking to me about the International Monetary Fund. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, people do, that. those lines can get quite blurred sometimes. But, um, yeah, I mean, you are in people's living rooms, you know. So that's Does that mean there are roles that you would be wary of taking on because you've seen that reaction, you know, up, up close? I would only be wary of them if they weren't well written. You know, if you were asked to play a paedophile or somebody who was murdering people and, and stuff, you know, then I wouldn't want to play it if I felt it was gratuitous, that there was no insight into the dilemma of the man or dilemma of the situation. Uh, have I, you been offered roles like that? I don't. I, I mean, roles where you've gone. Do you know what this is? This is titillating. Yes, this is. I have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've read. I've read many a script where I thought I don't want to do this. I mean, you know, the violence against women on TV. I mean, we spoke about this with Thorne a lot. Yeah. You know, the violence against women on TV. I think is out of hand. I mean, I do sometimes. You know, you watch programs. You think this is this ceases to become about character now. And, uh, you know, we took that very seriously on, on the job that we did together. And I think many people do, but sometimes I watch it. There's a uh, Doom McCreekin, who's a actress. Uh, oh, yeah, she wrote about She's wrote things. recently about the fact that, you know, that idea of the, you know, the woman on her own in a house and sort of people breaking in, it's just being used. So we just seem to love it, not just us in the UK, but in the... In, in the world, really. So it is, it's something that you have to be very careful about. And well, I do, when I read a script, I am very wary of those things. Well, with that in mind, uh, just as we sort of drift towards the end, do you think, looking back on the variety of, of roles you've played, in crime drama especially, do you see the roles for the, of, the, of the men you've played as, as, as being in any way a reflection of the way 
men's roles in society have changed over 30 years, let's say. I mean, do you, do you see characters as being different now when you're offered them in, in crime dramas? A little bit. I mean, it's interesting with The Missing. I feel that Sam is a man who's slightly trapped in his masculinity. He's not, you know, he wants to sort of kick out, but he doesn't as much. He has a go at uh, uh, Julian Baptiste once or twice, but he's, he's, he's unable to, to move. He's not a superhero. And I think years ago, you might have been able to sort of do that with this character, but he's much more real and of the times. But the, what I really have found over the last 10 years is, you know, girlfriends of mine who are actresses are getting great roles. They're getting great roles, and I'm able to work with them. And, you know, that they, we have scenes together that are great, or they'll be the lead in the, in the, in the show or something like that. And that's been different, you know, because for a long time, my mates would be, you know, actresses would go, the work would dry up. They would get to, you know, 40. Yeah. And suddenly they weren't getting roles anymore. Or if they were in crime dramas, it would be as prostitute three yeah. or as victims or as, or as playing coppers whose very life as a copper was defined by the fact that they were a woman in a man's world. That's right. kind of and thing. that's changing. You can yeah. see that is really changing. And, uh, and great, you know, all for it. Right, well now, as promised, in each episode uh, we ask our guests to bring their own recommendations along for a good read and a good watch. So, David, we want to hear your recommendations for leading man crime. What about a good read? Well, the good read, I have to say, was recommended by your good self, and it's uh, 4th of July Creek by Smith Henderson, which is... uh, When did you recommend it? It was not long ago, wasn't it? A couple of months? No, no, more more like about a year ago. About a year ago, and it... It's a wonderful American. It's his first it's book. His first book. Yeah. And it's it's it's, a, it's crime-ish, but it's also the leading character in it is not uh, a copper. He's uh, he works for social services in some way and it, his daughter goes AWOL and he goes looking for her. And it's uh, it's just so atmospheric and it's brilliantly drawn out oh, beautifully written. Yeah. It's a book sort of book that makes you sick. You yeah. kind of, as a writer I'm going. Right, yeah, not oh. me, but you maybe. Yeah, yeah, but I, me I sick. just thought it was wonderful. Right, that's 4th of July Creek by Smith Henderson, which I thoroughly agree is fantastic. What about something to watch, Dave? Well, I've just finished the second season of Gamora. And Gamora is a fantastic movie uh, that was made uh, not so long ago. Well, actually, probably about five or six years ago now. And it was a true story about the, uh, uh, the Italian mafia in Naples. But it's been made into a TV series now, uh, an Italian TV series. And it's just phenomenal. It's very violent, and uh, but very real and very muscular. Brilliant performances, and uh, and I, I thoroughly recommend it. But it, as I say, it's not for the squeamish. Not for the squeamish. I'm not squeamish. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Well, that's about it for this episode. You can find out more about A Stab in the Dark, along with articles and some great book competitions at uktv.co.uk slash astabinthedark, or get in touch with us on Twitter, hashtag astabinthedark. Plus, don't forget to review us on your podcast app. That's short for application, apparently. I'm so down with the kids. So, with that, it's a huge thank you to my very special guest, David Morrissey, our producers, Sam Pearson and Paul Hirons, to you for listening. My name's Mark Billingham, and I'll be doing some more Stabbing in the Dark, you know, in a good way, on the next episode.